Thank you. Hey. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Do you want to bring you like a little thing of milk? That would be great. Yeah. Thank you. Hello friends and welcome to episode 12 of So Poetry. Um, for those of you who've been following, um, you've probably noticed that I've dropped down to one podcast episode a month. Um, I did, I've done that partly because I've been busy with publishing books and having a book of mine published. Um, also because most of these have run over two hours um, and I feel like having two over two hour things in a month for y'all to listen to might give y'all a little bit of ear fatigue. Um, so for the foreseeable future, um, it will be a once a month thing. Um, I might do some, if I wind up with short episodes, I might do multiple ones, but now that I have a little more time with all the book stuff being done, um, this would be more regular. But aside from that, um, I'm sitting with my brand new poetry acquaintance, uh, Celeste Dokes, um, who from what I've heard is a great poet and a very good teacher. Aww. Um, and you have a you're going to be working with Mason Jar. I correct? am. Okay. You're right. Correct. Yeah. So um, Mason Jar is a press run by my friends um, Ian Anderson and Mike Tager uh, out of Baltimore. And they will be on the next episode oh. along with Amanda and Tracy who run Ink Press Productions. Very um, cool. So I'll have my first ever panel with more than just oh. one person talking. So that'll be fun. But so that's how Celeste and I... Um, we're acquainted with each other. Mike sent an email to both of us, essentially being like, y'all should know each other, meet. Get together. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so we are together, and I didn't have, I had an idea of somebody that I wanted for my May episode, but she's been down with the flu for a while, so um, Mike's email came at a very fortuitous time. Ah. Um, and Celeste has been great at uh, jumping into a podcast with me, um, so this will be fun. Yes, indeed. On Memorial Day weekend. Yes. Indeed. So, nice long weekend. Um, lots of time to hang out and do things since most people are out and away. And, yes. You know, no pressure for Monday since there's no, no work, no school. The city's kind of quiet. Yes. Um, so, before we begin, do you want to talk a little bit about yourself, like what, you, what you're up to? Sure. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about myself. Well, I call myself a poet and a journalist. Um, as you said, I am a teacher. I teach at Morgan State University. We just finished the end of the year. So I am decompressing from grading papers and all those sorts of things and um, busy, very busy crafting my reading list for the summer. You know, that's always an important thing. Like mm -hmm. when when classes in is to you know get a real solid grasp on what it is you want to read during the summer because by the time the semester gets started things get no away time. exactly yep. so so yeah um, so I'm busy doing that and uh, I'm also uh, getting married but that's a separate that's a separate thing altogether so I'm um, getting married this summer that's a kind of important thing I guess thank you thank you very much um, yeah and so um, in terms of my writing you know I'm just uh, spending the summer uh, working on a couple of projects and also, like I said, uh, sort of fortifying my, my reading list. That's important stuff. I have been reading the first couple of chapters of a bunch of novels. Oh, and fiction. Then, yeah, and then yeah. just 
for some, for, for whatever reason, either putting it down or just being like, eh. Um, mm. I start. What was the first one? Um, it was something, and then I was rereading the first. I was rereading Ann Patchett's. Um, oh. Bel Canto. Yeah. Because she came to speak recently in Baltimore, and I missed oh. it. Um, but I read Bel Canto back when I was in um, high school. And I was like, yeah, I know this book kind of, so I might as well give it a shot. And I got through the first, I think, two or three chapters, and then just, eh. And then as I was dog sitting on Thursday, uh, yeah. um, I, the my friend had a copy of Go Set a Watchman. Okay, And I right. was just thumbing through, and I got to chapter three, and then my partner came over, and I was like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know, like... I, there are certain novels that I kind of hover around that I, I can consistently go back and reread. Um, and then there are other ones that I start reading and I'm like, I don't know if it's just not the right time for this or mm. if my interests are towards something else or if I just have um, like ADD when it comes to this stuff and I just I can't sit down and, you know, like digest something this long. Well, I think it's different for poets and it depends on who... It depends on how you identify. If I mean, I shouldn't uh. say that. If you're a poet <laughs> and you identify as a poet, or if you're a fiction writer and you identify as a fiction writer, um, I think you know fiction is something you get into, and it's who you really want to be uh, engulfed in a world. I feel like with fiction, right? Because there are characters and there's a plot, and mm-hmm. and you're busy figuring out who's going to do what and what their motives are, right? It's a really different right. world than poetry to me you know like poetry is kind of like you can read five or seven and then just digest them you know what I mean but fiction is really a world once I get in I sort of like either like you said I'm in I'm gonna go all the way through or I read a couple three four chapters and and I I feel like with yeah with a lot of fiction um it's difficult to carve out that amount of time to sit down because like if you read for like five minutes a day it's going to take you a long time to finish the book, sure. and it's also you can't ever really get into it. It's like sure. like binge watching um, <laughs> like like a TV series or something. It's yeah. like you really need to invest that amount of time to. I mean, you don't need to not to get an experience of it, but to get like a really sure. like as deep as you could possibly get. Oh yeah, you need a lot of time to sit down and read this. Whereas you with, do. with poetry or I guess like short stories, like you can knock a couple of them out and get whatever experience or whatever they're trying to convey and kind of hold on to that until the next session instead of having to be like okay well I have to reread these past couple pages because I totally forgot like, right. what was happening right. when I stopped reading because I had to go get groceries or right. you know go right exactly else. right you want to be and like I said it's like a world you know fiction is a world that when you're in it it's like even when you're getting groceries you're thinking about oh well, what are my characters going to do right. you know you're like you're literally you're in it you know what I mean and so you go home and you say man when I get done grocery shopping I'm going to read three three or four chapters of this because I want to find out more about the world you know but poetry is a I, I don't know if it's a a lighter obligation or if it's also just something that you don't have to be totally engulfed in you know but yeah. I enjoy I enjoy the maybe the lighter obligation of poetry however you, you want to articulate it I don't know I like it, it it might be a difference in what they're trying to convey because like you said with novels it's or with fiction prose like long-form prose they're right. crafting a world and you really when you start getting for th- things that are that long and that in depth you really have to be specific about the world that you're crafting unless, unless you're pulling like a Raymond Carver and it's right hitting just doing pulling kind of like a poetry thing and hitting the like the couple of things that you need to know and right. then you allow the audience to fill in the rest of it right um, whereas 
at least the poetry that I've been gravitating more and more to lately, it's conveying experiences or like right more, like that's true too. more emotional experiences right more emotional experience and more intense experiences yes. too right, right. you and know what you, I mean if you sit in it for too yeah. long it's you become overwhelmed sure um, right but it's easy enough to you know I was as you were walking up I was reading haiku and those are like the best at encapsulating those moments of sure you get exactly what you need to get yeah and you fill in the rest and that's you know, that's it. Yeah. And they, they hit you, you can you can hold it, and then you're done. It's like a sprint instead of like a long distance. It is, right, exactly. It's a sprint as a poet. And that's what I think I've always, one of the reasons why I've probably always been attracted to poetry is because I, I don't feel like for my own writing, even though I've written in other forms, I write in journalism, I write in, I've written, um, you know, uh, short stories and other forms, I think that I'm really good at illuminating a moment. That's what I think my strong point is, you know? I mean, I don't know if other people feel that or not. Maybe that's just me, maybe mm -hmm. I'm wrong. But I mean, uh, in sustaining a really long, that's a hard thing for me, you know? Like you said, that's like the marathon, and it's just like, man, you get tired three quarters of the way, and you kind of want to yep. lay down and drink some water mm -hmm. and <laughs> have an ice cream cone, but you can't, you just gotta keep, right. you gotta stay the distance, you know? And poetry is a much shorter, more compact, more intense moment that I, and I really love, you know, to yeah. be immersed in that thing for that moment. So I don't, I don't think that I've asked any of the other poets on my podcast this, but um, mm. so for me, um, most of the thoughts that I get are um, short. Like they're not super in depth. They're not super engaging. I mean, they are engaging, but they're not. They're not long thoughts. It's like little short things. And I feel like because that's the way that I think poetry as a as a uh, artistic format fits that that it, it's like and a lot of my poems are short so you get in you say what you need to say and you can yeah. convey whatever like revelation or thing that that you happened upon or that you came to and that's it instead right. of having to develop themes and have like arcs yeah. of stuff and yeah 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 it's like I don't I yeah, yeah, yeah. like that yeah 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 I don't either I think that's the way most poets probably feel you know and I'm very I shouldn't, I don't know if I should say this or not, but I'm unattracted to the, the epic. If you, uh, you know, the Homer yes. and the, and you know, the Omeros and all, you know, like, I mean, it's not like I haven't read that, but it's like, man, this is just like an uphill battle. You know, it's just, it feels heavy and it feels like, and like you said, it's not how I think. And it's also not how I speak, you know, right. um, that's important for poets, how they speak and what their natural um, inclination towards rhythm is and right. how you know all of that affects your your work and so I like you I mean my poems they may not be as short as yours but I feel like my poems are on the you know I mean they can 12 15 16 lines maybe you know at, and I mean there are some longer ones but generally that's my that's where I do my you know concise sort of work you right know what and I mean? it's yeah and it's uh, I think more maybe not more of a challenge but definitely more of a um, I think you have to be skilled in a, or adroit in a different way yeah. for writing poems that short because in those instances, every word matters. Yes. And everything has to be on the same level of brightness and yes. burn. And yes. if you don't have that or if there's a yes. fault in it, then it's like yes. that's you know a sixteenth of the poem yes. that you've wasted or they could have been yes. used for something that's... Yes. More than this. Yes. I always tell my students that. I always tell my students what I'm teaching. I'm like, I'm kind of ADD, which is, <laughs> that's a joke, but it's probably a very bad joke. But it's the same thing. It's about movies and all of the art that probably I'm really attracted to and consume and really like. I'm not saying that I haven't 
really loved a movie that was three hours long, like Godfather right, yeah. or whatever, right? It's a, it's an epic, right, you know, sort of thing. But I really feel like I'm attracted, and I can get really distracted in the middle of a movie if it's not, right, yeah. if it's not bright and it's not crisp. And I feel like, man, this scene feels useless, you know, or, yeah. I feel, or it's lethargic. Like, eh. Right, exactly. And so for me, I don't know. I think it's, everybody's wired differently, but I think that's an important thing is that I have to be locked in and I have to feel you know, compelled to, you know, stay the distance, whatever the distance is. But, you know, nowadays, every every movie, every film I've gone to see, I feel like in the last year, has been like two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah. Everyone thinks that they're writing. <laughs> I don't understand why people are writing really long movies. No one writes like the hour and a half movie anymore, yeah. you know, which is just when like, it's, Yeah, and it's, I, I think know. there's a lot of, yeah, I've, I've seen some, like, I, um, the Civil War, uh, Captain America Civil War that came out recently was just like really kind of abysmal that mm. there was right because like again like when you're writing in a long form it, the, the challenge is the sustain right um, that you have to make sure that people are engaged with this thing in right. the long form right um, and then my partner and I went to Benji's like the drive-in theater um, right. last night and we saw Zootopia which is right around like maybe not even two hours right um but it was like solid i mean there are like slow moments in it because they're neat like the action and like the art sure. it's like you know things sure. need to be a little right. drawn out and a little like a little heavier emotionally and it's not right like action-packed but right like that was in my opinion a much tighter right film right um right then you know then and un- like the epic Yes, that's what I'm always telling my students. And I, and I tell my students, you know, I said, I think it's really important when you, I don't know, if, if you're thinking about writing, if you're thinking about putting together a book, or, right, you know, you have to think about your reader. Your reader's sitting there and your reader's like, am I engaged or am I not? Right. Could, you know, when I'm in a movie, I'm thinking to myself, if this scene isn't good, I could go get Twizzlers right. at the front. I could, or I could leave the movie altogether. You know, mm-hmm. like that's a real, to me, something that people should be mindful of when they're, I guess, when, if you're, I don't know how many writers think about audience. And I mean, I, I but for me, I'm thinking about audience because I consume, I consume, I consume right. film, I consume, you know, visual art. I can, you know, I'm a consumer of art. So I'm always thinking about the other side about, you know, how am I keeping my reader engaged and all those sorts of things. You know, I told my students I went to go see uh, Tarantino's Hateful Eight and it was just, it was just, it was abysmal to me. It was like, and, I, and I'm a fan of Tarantino, but this one was just like, long and draggy and the you know the dialogue wasn't fresh and I just felt like yeah pass you know what I mean and I I I sort of felt like I'm one of those people who can literally get up and walk out of a movie I'm sure that's probably not something I should say I don't think I've ever I don't think I've ever gotten up and walked out of of, out of oh I have oh yeah I think I mean it's I'm I might be getting there but there was a it was a huge revelation for me when I realized that I didn't have to finish a book if it wasn't Mm. engaging I was like I don't because I always felt that there was this weird obligation. It's like, oh, I, you know, I started reading this and I should probably finish it. But it's like, no, if it's not engaging, don't do it. Don't do it. It, it. That's not to say that it won't be at some future point in time. Sure. But it's just like at that moment, if it's if it's not working for you, that you'll go back to something it. Something else. Right. Of course. And I think, but I think you have to think about. There's someone on the other side. There's someone right. reading your work. There's someone looking at your blog. There's someone. You know, I tell my students that all the time. I'm like, and if they get disengaged they will drop you and go to something else that's the reality of the world you know and so you know yeah and of course like you're saying about books I mean there are books that I read because they're educational and I need to you know I need their class 
six and I need to get through them, right? You understand what I'm saying? But if, you know, I don't know, whatever, Moby Dick was a modern day book, mm, probably not. You understand? Yeah. And then there's the whole, like, the whole idea of, um, which we might, so it's, it's beginning to rain. So we it might is. have to uh, pause have this to for a second and go inside. But I wanted to, to say, uh, at least as a topic to talk about once we oh. relocate, um, the whole idea of like what makes a classic, and, uh, and like who's 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 the deciding factor of the canon of like what you should read to be considered um, a scholar of, of yeah, literature. or like somebody informed enough to because like I, I have, there's a, a litany of books that I've never read. That are in the canon of things is like you should read this. I mean, it's like, right. Eh, maybe I mean, as a musician too, there's a there's a lot of bands that are like ah. these fundamental and like foundational bands sure. and or groups or people that you should study. And I'm like, I they don't do it for me. I'd much rather listen to other stuff that actually like engages me. Yeah, um, but there are things you can find in in some of those uh, band music bands or books that are. Even though they're difficult to get through, there are things you can find in them that are useful to yes. you and your craft. That's what I want to say yes. before we... And that's the part that makes them worthwhile. Yes. Other than that, yeah. But I tell my students that all the time. You know, sometimes you'd be amazed when you read some stuff and you say, man, I hated this book, but you know, there was this chapter that had something really right, cool. Yeah. They were doing something really cool in there and I like to extract it and use it in my craft at my everyday, you know. So that's... Yeah, so we, I mean, we'll talk about it more, but that's what I really feel like. I feel like there are things that I learn, you know, from um, other works of art, although they, in the moment I might have thought, God, this is really a drag to get through, or this is really, you know, super laborious. But, you know, once I did it, I was like, I thought back and I said, you know what, there are a couple things in there that I could pull out and I could use for my own work. And I think that um, can be really helpful. Yeah. So we're going to pause this real quick and get out of the rain and come back. For us, will be a couple of minutes. For the listeners, will be like no time has passed at right. all. So we will be right back. Bye, guys. Okay, and we're back. A little bit quieter because we're now sitting inside. We don't want to uh, bother anybody else. But um, yeah, so with um, oh the canon. Yeah, the with canon. the canon, it's it's difficult because I, especially with music, um, and I'm assuming with with literature too, you have a whole idea of or like with writing, it's like you have to learn the rules and you have to, to learn from the people who have done stuff before um, so that you can kind of understand what you can do and what you can't do. And then once you learn the rules, um, you can bend them enough so that you can still keep it within whatever it is that you're trying to do but have it be unique and fresh. Because I, whenever I think about that, I think about E.E. E. Cummings and how a lot of his poems are sonnets. Mm-hmm. They don't read like sonnets, but they don't. they're sonnets. And it's right. like he knew enough about the form and about the language to not only like bend the English language itself almost to the breaking point where it still kind of makes sense, but also about the sonnet form that you can tweak it enough and still have it read. It's, um, so I do think that there's value in that, but I also think that there's a level of like, if you can get that knowledge from a source that's separate from this thing that you say that you need to be aware of. Um, like if, right. you, if you arrive at the same place that the knowledge of this canon work or this, this classic thing yeah. would have given you or has given somebody else, then 
distance. Like I think that any any route to a destination is valid if you want to go. It is, and what you're kind of talking about like speaks to me because I'm pretty anti-authority. I think lots of poets uh, are, you know what I mean? I mean, poets, musicians, uh, lots of, I don't know, uh, all kinds of people are anti-authority. And so I think there's this thing in your mind that says, yeah, I don't have to go that way in order to get to this destination, right? right? And so, and I felt that way before my MFA too, is I was like, this is crazy, you know. But I think one of the things that knowing, quote unquote, the classical canon, no matter whether you agree with what's in the canon, we can't go down that long rabbit hole today, but it, whether you agree with what's in it or not, I think there are things in it that um, that really strengthen um, your craft, and I think that, I've, that I have found uh, learning fixed forms like you're talking about, well earlier we were talking about haiku, mm -hmm. you just were talking about sonnet, um, and I like even um, Arabic forms, I like guzzle, I like, I'm very much into form, um, and I teach form in my classroom, but I think learning all of those things like you said, once you know the rules, once you know the steps, once you learn about iambic tetrameter, iambic pentameter, then you can duplicate it, but also you can bring a fresh view to it, right? right? You know what I mean? your view and not somebody else. Right, and not someone, and you can also learn how to twist it, how to, you know, bend it enough to make it yours, right? You know, not to have it be Shakespeare's sonnets, which I always tell my students, you know, don't write about love because you're never going to do it better than Shakespeare, and they get kind of discouraged by that, but I'm very, I'm like, so, and I don't want them, because that's a natural thing for them to want to do, I want them to do other things, and then try to come back to the thing that they think they're going to do well, which they're not going to do well, yeah. but anyway, you know what I mean, I mean, yeah. no one's going to do sonnets better than Shakespeare, right, I mean, right. it, I'm just, it's just not going to happen, right? But what we can do is bring our own view, you know, bring your location, bring your identity, bring your geography to a sonnet that may, and that makes it dope, and that that can make it valid. But you, in order to do that, though, you've got to unfortunately learn the formal yeah, and way. One of the other things that, or one of the things that, um, going back to like the learning the rules before you can break them, um, has always bothered me with that phrase. Is that um, you don't like you can break rules without knowing what the rules sure it's possible it's just you don't know why you're breaking the exactly rules. so in that respect it's I think it can be beneficial but it's like the more that you know about this thing the more that you understand is like oh this is why this may not work and this is why this could work. right exactly um, and like with with haiku as a, as a fixed form mm -hmm. um, there has probably been at least a million haiku since haiku Sure. Like started as a form. Uh, yeah. Um, a gazillion. Yes. Right. Um, but each one of them is or can be unique because at least like from your own writing, like not to discourage anybody from not writing in a fixed form, but right. Because it's coming from it's like nobody has has had your specific perspective or your specific voice. And mm -hmm. it's, um, right. I think a lot right. of. Actually, I wrote a, a, something that I've, I've never done anything with, but kind of thinking through the idea of if there's actually such a thing as bad poetry. Um, and my conclusion is like I came to a lot of the things that, that at least that I've seen is people would consider bad poetry is just young poetry. It's like mm, somebody who is right, not, uninformed, uninformed poetry yeah, is what like you I haven't, would say. You haven't. You're either young in that you're first, you're just starting out, or you're mm -hmm. young and you just haven't had the experience enough to know that. Um, so I think a lot of bad poetry is either in, inadvertent, um, like biting of somebody else's style, mm -hmm. like trying to write in right. the way that mimicking, else straight does. mimicking, right? Um, or cliches, right. which both right. to me is a, is a direct correlation with 
having not had enough experience exactly. to know that's like, oh, this is how I write. Exactly. Um, and yeah. Getting to the point because, like, whenever I read um, like Charles Wright or Mary Oliver a whole mm -hmm. lot or like Bay Dow, mm -hmm. um, I tend to kind of start writing not in their voice, but mm. poems that are closer. It's like I start. Like the more that it's like spending time with a friend, it's like you start seeing things, or understanding sure. the way that they see or, stuff, or talking like they talk, or say, yeah, yes. right. Sure. Um, but it's like it, it feels like they're accented like that, but they're still definitely it's like you know they wouldn't write the, the things that I'm writing about. Right. It's just kind of like there's a little bit of a coloration right. of them, and I think that there's, I think the goal of a, of a writer, it's like if you're if you're looking to other poets for inspir that type of inspiration, is to getting to the point where it's like you aren't doing you're not trying to mimic or copy what their what they did but you're seeking you know, the same thing like you're on the same path they're on right adjacent to them right right i think that, well two things i wanted to say so the one thing i wanted to say before we closed out the forum conversation is that i think forum two also when i teach it and when i explain it to my students what i say to them often is forum is just a vase to put your content in right and so if you've ever bought flowers everybody in the world's probably bought flowers right sometimes you you know if they're really tall you can't put them in a really short vase because what they do is they just <laughs> they jut out right, right. You, yeah. it's the wrong vase right mm -hmm. and, and then if you get really short flowers you put them in a really tall face and they drown right? right and so what I'm trying to teach my students is that form is a way to think about content to say okay I want to write this poem about you know, uh, my aunt's funeral or, wh or whatever it is, you know. And is the content short? Is it long? Is it, um, do I have a repeated phrase in it maybe that keeps recurring, you know? It, or is it gonna be a villanelle? Is it gonna turn on itself? You know, all of these kind of things are really important. But you can't, again, you can't know these things unless you've right. studied the form and you've seen people perform the form well right you know what I mean so that's the thing for me is like it really helps you um, package your own work you know because a lot of students are just like I write free verse I write free verse I write okay great you like free verse okay you know but there's even form to free verse we can't get into that in this discussion right, yeah. either but there is form to free verse right but I'm saying that even still once they learn the form students start to come to me and say I have this great idea for the poem and I think it would be better as a right. guzzle or better as and I'm like now you're starting to see because there's certain there's certain like if you were if you're writing a, um, let's say a haiku about your aunt's funeral mm -hmm. that's a much different type of poem than if you were to write a right. gazelle or it's right. like a sijo or right. a sonic or a villain right. even um, and it really depends on like what you're trying to um, shine a light on exactly. in those moments of, like the haiku is like you're distilling it down to the essence right. with the sonic you can expand it a little bit more and have the rhyme to kind of right. like knit things right. together. Right. Um, the right. the L you have repetition that changes slightly every time it right. happens. So Right, exactly. And and you know I think also like I said I think uh, gender identity, I think uh, you know, gender orientation, you know, all of those things um, play into uh, forms, right? So I think that also can really spice up forms to me because I think, you know, so, okay, you know, we have, people tend to think of it as a classic white male, you know, forms as being classic white male forms, right? But when you have, um, you know, homosexual, when you have minority um, ethnic, ethnicities, you know, um, writing um, sonnets or writing, you know, I think about Marilyn Nelson, who's a writer, um, I love her sonnets, and she writes like a sort of post, um, you know, post-Civil War sort of sonnets that I think are fantastic, right? You know, or um, there are lots of writers who are 
um, on the scene, you know, or um, even Aaron Smith, who's, um, uh, you know, a, a gay male who's, who writes in form in one of his first books, um, Blue on Blue Ground, I think um, these are writers that are transforming fixed forms, right? They're learning fixed forms and then they're um, performing them in a way that is um, sort of changing the literary landscape in a way. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, so that's the thing that's exciting to me. And it doesn't mean that, that I'm that I don't like free verse. It doesn't mean that I don't allow my students to write in free verse. It doesn't mean that I don't write in free verse, but it's just a way it's a new way of seeing, it's a new way of presenting material um, through a lens that might have been seen as restrictive or might have been seen as patriarchal but doesn't have to be that way. Right. You know what I mean? That's what I sort of think and I about. Think, I think you could probably take that that view or that stance on the classics. That they're sure. they're typically seen as this thing and then either like with I was spending some time today um, reading about the Wicked series by mm -hmm. uh, oh crap, I don't remember his name. Um, but it's what the, the play Wicked is based off of. Um, and it's a revisionist series based upon um, like the original Wizard of Oz right. books. Okay. Um, it's kind of like what... Which I never read the original Wizard of Oz books. I don't know. Yeah, and it's, they're, they're apparently a lot weirder and crazier than the movie ever... I believe that. To touch. Even the movie's a little, yes. a little crazy. But it's, it's kind of like, I think it was Stoppard who wrote Grindel as like the revisionist mm -hmm. version of Beowulf. Right. right. Um, so you have this... Like after Dada and after postmodernism, you have this, or like um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Mm -hmm. it's like right, exactly. Right. It's you're dealing with the same sorts of themes and the same kind of ideas, but you're presenting it in a way that's that challenges this, exactly. this thing. That's like you obviously have to have an awareness or an understanding of what the source material is. Right. But well, a good yes. a, a good a good grasp on what right. the source material um, is. Right. But presenting it in a way that is um, that like breaks or that angles differently and that arrives at a kind of interesting new place because it's themes and ideas that are being thought about by somebody who wasn't the original author. Exactly. And when you're saying those reimaginations, it makes me think of um, Anne Sexton, her um, her Transformations um, book. We talk about reimagining. She does a reimagining of Grimm's fairy tales, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but, you know, Sexton is interested primarily in uh, a feminist revision of Grimm's fairy tales, right? Mm -hmm. So you get all, you get Cinderella, you get all of these really interesting fairy tales, but told as if you know, well, hey, these women could be in charge. They, they right. you know, they're not just waiting for the prince to give them the golden slipper. You know, I mean, it's just that's good. I mean, you know, it's kind of ridiculous in some sort of. But in order for her to challenge that material appropriately, obviously, she not just had to read them, but she had to read them and understand them intimately, right? Yeah, or like, right. Or, um, Anne Carson's work right. with uh, like Autobiography of Red yeah, or Antagonic right. or any exactly. of the other updated versions right. of ancient Greek things that are like right. exactly that are I've seen um, I've seen kind of like two sides of some people at least in regard to Antagonic but some people are like this is a great piece of like translation and right. or, or collaboration with the original source and then on the other side which I feel is probably a little more like canon establishment mm, that right. like oh this is how can you say that this is a translation it's deviated so wildly and it's you know I mean from what I've read of both of them they seem like they're like all all the the moments that need to be there right are there it's like right. um, I took a uh, adaptations class in my final year of college mm. 
it was sci-fi adaptation. So we would read, read the source like story or book or whatever, right, and right. then either watch or at least talk about like watch the entire film or watch snippets of the film. Right, um, right, right. And the kind of overarching question that sem that semester was, what makes a good adaptation? Right. Um, and a lot of people going into the class were like, well, it's faithfulness to the source material. Mm -hmm. and at the end of the class, most people were like, well, because literature and film are two vastly different mediums. Sure, they are. Like, things can't be reproduced. Like, Game of Thrones. It's like, there's right. certain things that can't be reproduced or it's more convenient to combine two characters or right. events. Um, so most of, at the end of the class, most of the people were on the side of what the teacher had posited at the beginning of class, that a good adaptation um, has like has the same tone, creates the same mood, hits on the same themes, mm. develops things in a particular, like the same sort of way that the author dealt with it. Because we were, um, mm. one of the big things that we talked about, or we read uh, War of the Worlds and then mm. watched Spielberg's version of it. Wow. Um, so the original War of the Worlds was, um, Wells thinking through like if um, like what would happen if there was some race that dealt with uh, English people the way that English people deal with races like other races right. around the world like right. people that seemingly reverse colonialism yeah, that have, <laughs> yeah essentially or like right. colonialism you have this group right. of overpowered things coming to claim this land and wiping right. out the kind of like you know things that they don't view as you know, it's like food or chattel or whatever. Right. Um, and Spielberg's version of it was about family. It was about Tom, mm. Tom Cruise maintaining hold over his very quickly deteriorating family, mm. which is a theme for Spielberg throughout his stuff. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, I so agree. in I our agree. class, we were like, this isn't, it's like, it's a good film, but it's not a, it's not a really good sure. adaptation of this book sure. because it deals with two very right. different ideas of things. Right. Right. Um, whereas Blade Runner mm -hmm. doesn't deal like it drops a hell of a lot of plot from um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, but is really faithful to the kind of the world that it creates and the mood and the hopelessness and the, the ambiguity of Dick's original work. So yeah. Like you know, despite that this is a like wildly different plot. Yeah. It's a really good adaptation. Of this. Yeah, and it sounds I like I like the way your class sort of delineate whether or not it's a good adaptation. I think for me, I don't really, having read a lot of books and then having said, saw, seen a lot of movies about books, I get disappointed and irritated a lot because I feel like, you know, I'm like, ah, oh, they didn't include this. And I mean, obviously the movie can't be five hours long. No one's gonna sit in theater for five hours to watch, you know, an ad adaptation. But at the same time, like, I get very, I feel like maybe 80% of the, the adaptations I've seen, I'm not, I don't feel strongly about oh, yeah. them. You know what I mean? And I feel I like there's, there's a 20% that's like, you know, that I'm like, okay, that was done appropriately. You know, I keep thinking back to uh, Tyler Perry's uh, For Colored Girls, which I don't know who saw that movie, but I can't even go down the rabbit hole of Ty Tyler Perry either. But um, the original book by Ntozaki Shange was um, really inspirational for black women. Um, I mean, even though the book was done, you know, decades ago, mm -hmm. it, it, it has withstood the time, you know, test of time. It's like Alice Walker's Color Purple, right? It's mm -hmm. an inspirational book for black women. But I mean, you know, Tyler Perry just somehow, I don't know, he touches things and they just curdle like <laughs> I don't know. It just was, there were multiple things that were wrong um, with the adaptation to me. And I just, you know, and so I feel like most movies do that for me. Most movies fall flat. But I think that it's it's tough when you have a movie that is 
like even the the smallest like indie film is you know upwards of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. To yeah, produce. you're right. I mean, you're right. You have um, right. I think right. it's like the consideration of the audience in that case that right. have to make it um, more palatable for a wider uh, a wider audience that. Um, like if you were gonna give a really good adaptation of this book, might not land. Exactly. Like might not be super marketable. So exactly. there's a lot of like, like that compromise of maybe you should have compromised right. there, or just like maybe you should have just left this alone. Right. Or not inserted that really horrible sex scene in the middle of a movie that <laughs> that really doesn't do yeah. that. You know. I mean, yeah. So that's why I'm just like, I'm like, ah, oh, here they go, here they go, trying to sell the movie. You know. Or how, you know. I mean. So I mean, film is. I try to I try to be open minded and I try to go see things and I try to be like okay yeah I read the book or da 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 but a lot of times I just I just like you said they end up pandering to the audience it becomes about dollars and cents and who's gonna sit in the theater and, yeah. and can we get Tom Cruise to be the the main actor in the movie you know what I mean and poets and writers don't have that I mean one thing about poetry is that we don't make a lot of money yes right but. The great thing about it is that we don't have that pressure. Right. Yeah. To it's think like no about. one's, no one's exactly. going to try to make an action film out of um, <laughs> a Sharon Olds book. You yeah. Know? Or like Louise Pluck. Um, right. 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 Love right. um, Louise. Yeah. 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 No. You, no. That's not going to happen. Yeah. It's, ne it's never going to. Although happen. there is. Um, are you familiar with the filmmaker Sally Potter? No, I don't think she. Um, so I, I minored in film. In, oh, cool. Um, in undergrad and. All throughout our film studies, we were talking about like the auteur theory and like, is it a thing? Can you actually have somebody who, like, can you can you parse down the, the influence and the themes of the film to one person? Mm. And in Sally Potter's case, she is, I think, the closest person, director um, or filmmaker that I've come to because she directs films, she writes them, she does choreography, she starred in a couple of them, she oh, does wow. editing, she oh, does wow. like done music, so she really has oh, yeah. her hands in everything. Right, okay, um, right. But she did an adaptation of Othello with oh, Tilda oh. Swinton, which oh, is, huh. ends in a very, very weird way, but feels like a really faithful adaptation, or really faithful to... I should check this out. It's, 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 a, okay. it's a weird, awesome film. All right, um, but on my list. So it's like... I feel like when you have smaller ventures um, or like passion product, products, yeah, you can get yeah, I agree. Like, regardless I agree. of what it is, um, you can right. get a lot closer to sure. Um, like all the indie presses and stuff that are coming out that are yeah. producing, like Bulk Press or uh, Grey Wolf, mm -hmm. and Red Hand, that are producing right. um, these awesome, awesome books from authors that are just like everything feels like it syncs up and it's together. Yeah. Um, because I've definitely encountered, so there's, I, I'm sure that I've probably mentioned this a couple of times before, but there's the adage of like, you can't judge a book by its cover, um, which I do. And after being in design classes and stuff, I am a lot more ruthless with it now than I ever was before, because there's a level of like, the, the cover and the visuals of this book is the worst encounter and experience that you have with this author's work. And if it's like, if it doesn't match up, or it's like if you look at something, it's like this is a terrible cover. It's like, or like a, if you flip through it and it's in um, some sort of, I don't know, like sans serif font. Right, right, like, right, right. I can't. See, regardless of how good whatever it is could be, it's like I just I can't. I knew nothing about this um, 
this thinking about, uh, I mean, like you can't judge a book by its cover, not that, but I, before my first book, um, which was published in the UK, and that in and of itself was a different process, but this, deciding what was going to be on the f cover of the book was a big concern, right? So two things happened. I commissioned or asked a, 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 an artist whose work I really love to um, do me kind of like a, uh, an adaptation of what she thought the title of my book, which is Cornrows and Cornfields, would look like. She did one. Okay, let me, okay, so right, I'm not going to say her name because I don't want her to, but anyway, she did one, and I loved it, and I sent it to my publisher, and my publisher was like, mm, I'm not sure we want to go with that, and I was like, you know, I kind of love it. Now, let me explain that, that, the, that the, the visual art piece that she did was kind of like a little black girl kind of in a field. Um, it was kind of like a prairie kind of setting, maybe kind of, it looked kind of Southern, even though I'm born in Indiana, it, hadn't, it wasn't about the South, but it kind of had a Southern feel to it. And my publisher was just like, I feel like because there's a little girl and because this is a um, acrylic, you know, that it's a little, um, people are gonna feel it's a little pedestrian. People are gonna look at the, because it looked, I guess, maybe like the cover of a children's book. I didn't feel like it did, but my publisher said, you want a really mature feel to your book. He was like, and I think that this artwork doesn't do it justice, you know? And it wasn't a slam to the artist right, yeah, who just, I loved her work. It's just that what it conveyed was- It's like you're dealing with, with fixed forms. It's, it wasn't the right vase, yeah. Right, and so I and I really was like kind of heartbroken at the beginning, you know. And I was kind of like, again, anti-authority. Um, I was kind of pushing. A, I didn't tell him no, but I was kind of like, well, we'll see. We'll just wait, and maybe he'll change his mind, you know. <laughs> but no, he didn't change his mind. He was like, so I really want you to think about what the cover of the book, you know, should look like. And he said, let me send you some ideas of some things that were kind of going you know in my mind and we ended up taking uh like kind of like a mashup of two things that he really liked um which were it, and it and it felt a little bleaky to me is what it felt like um and i'll show you the cover of the book but um ultimately it is a it the cover feels much more serious um at, uh, that I went with what my um publisher wrecking ball wanted you know what i mean it, it um it took away the uh, yeah, it's really raining outside now. Um, it took away the um, the childlike, playful feel is what I think it took away from the book. And I guess that's a good thing because you're saying that, you know, people do really look at books and say, hey, you know, look at the cover of something and say. And it's it's helpful. Um, like, I'm in, I'm in kind of a weird position because I, um, the book of mine that was published by, I would do a shout out, Cherry Alley Press. Um, yeah, you should. Um, at least Richmond is awesome. Um, sure. But I designed my own book. Oh, cover? Um, well, I... Oh, the uh, whole thing? Yeah, like I laid it out. I designed all of it. Um, wow. She's, <laughs> she's not, um, self-admittedly, she's not the best when it comes to like the, that type of visual design. Sure. Um, and I've been, you know, like the, my thesis, her, the, her book... So now I'm showing Michael the cover, okay. the cover of my book. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. I don't want you to forget what you were saying. But yeah, so there it is. There's the bleakness, sort of. I said the, you know, like the trees and the little farmhouse yeah, it's, it's and the little, right. But right. so, like for me, um, like I'm, I have a huge, huge affinity for open space and openness. Mm. 
and this kind of has that feeling for me that it's like it's not for me it's not necessarily bleak but it's um, closer to like evening on a summer night when mm. you don't have like anything to do it's like mm. that, that kind of mm. like aimlessness mm. to it um, which is would be interesting to read this and see like which one matches up because that's that's what I was, I was trying to get to that for each it's helpful to have like an editor or a publisher um, or like a visual artist who is as intimate with your work as yes, the writer is. I agree. But comes at it from a view a different, like, a different point of view. Because you have to, it's like you know, working with manuscripts and stuff. It has to be a. It's not a. It's not a unit like poem unit by poem unit. It's it, it's, it becomes a totality. Right. Of course. Step right. away from it a little bit. Right. And then when you come to the visuals, it's that again. That sort of like. Um, are we? Is it going to be something that is evocative of um, like the title? Like, so my thesis, um, which I actually can show you. Oh, right. We're um, sharing. We're sharing. Sharing and caring here today. And I can. I can put up images of all this stuff as links. Oh, um, that would be good too. Oh, right. So people could see what we're talking mine's about. Mine's actually similar. Oh, feel. it is. Um, so my my original my wow. first chapbook um, is a bunch of silhouetted trees down at the bottom, and then just a big open blue space right and the title was the now empty sky um so this is like the visual interpretation of wow um whereas um elisa's book the second book that i, I published um, with my press is the title is blue mondays and the cover is a um, kind of like a stylized stamp of a wine glass and a, a wine bottle hmm. because throughout the book there's a lot of like drinking and allusion to drinking and sure. kind of like drinking and different like to escape to assimilate right. sort of like that right. is that theme is running throughout it so it's right. like visually has nothing to do with the title but it has everything to do with like the arc some What's, of the arcs of the yeah um, that's different and you you as a book as i feel like someone who you you yourself have run a small press so i think it's a little different i mean you can I think you have well you you've been on both sides right yeah. but I think for me being on one side I'm totally like well yeah this you know right. I, f I feel like I want to I want I my first and my first uh, inclination was to have a visual interpretation of like you know like I was saying a little black girl in the Midwest somewhere and that's what what my visual artist gave me which I thought was perfect I thought this is great for the cover of my book and I think what you're saying is that my pub and what my publisher was saying is you're you're thinking more about the feel and the arc of the book and and not just a straightforward sort right. of quote unquote interpretation of whatever I mean it ended up being I love my the cover of my book I think it's gorgeous I think it fits and I ended up very happy but you know um I think sometimes you I think writers have to sometimes let their baby go they yes. have to they have to that's important and that's right? you know let having, the baby go having an editor somebody that is like understands where you're going like the direction that you're trying to go and where you're coming from but doesn't have the intimate um, like love connection that you have to your writing <laughs> helps because it, love fest right yeah, it, yeah. Allows, it allows you to, to to really get to the heart of like what is this piece and I've like as a editor for other people's writing right um, I feel like it has definitely helped in my own because I can I have different like if I'm if I'm writing, I'm writing. And right. If I'm editing, I do typically do very very little writing because there's like the critic that's I right. try to keep chained up and away when I'm writing. Right. I allow that to come out and right. it's like you know really 
ruthlessly and objectively look at my at my work and be like, does all of this is this cohesive? Do these things need to be here? Yeah. Um, so it's I've been able to get to the point that I can I can kind of separate that that out. I'm but I'm not good, but most writers are not good. So no. that's so again I say that's why we need to let our babies go. Yes. You know what I mean? Uh, kill your darlings, do whatever you need to do, but you know. And something yeah. that actually helped, um, which I could probably throw up this too. Um, in um, my first poetry workshop of grad school, um, up until that point, I didn't really revise my work at all. It was a lot of like, like almost improvisation. Ooh. Like just uh, whatever I was done, I would do some light edits from handwriting to being a typewriter. Right, of course, um, right. But after that, I didn't touch it because um, I always viewed revision as a um, more of a procedural and like a doctor way of like viewing the poem that there's something wrong and it has to be fixed. Mm. Um, and then um, she, my teacher, Kendra Kapelke, gave us um, an article written about Rita Dove and her revision process. Mm. Um, and we read something by oh God, another poet who was talking about where our allegiance lies. Mm -hmm. um, and both of them got me to the point of realizing that um, revision is a, for at least for me, is an incredibly intimate process. It's like I really have to know my work and where it wants to go but also um, get myself to shut up enough so I can hear where the poem wants to go. Mm -hmm. at, the end, you know, at the very end of the process, or ideally, your allegiance is to the piece itself. Sure. Um, yeah, you know, like I whatever, think, yeah. Whatever critiques or whatever criticisms that you get, um, you have to weigh it up against. It's like, does oh, this yeah. fit with, oh, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And then when you come to like individual lines or like stanzas and stuff, it's like, because whenever before this, or before coming to this realization, whenever I would cut something, it was, in my mind, it was because this is, this, it's because it wasn't good. Um, no, 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 it could be great. Right, yeah, exactly. It just doesn't fit in this yes. poem. And that's, that's the place that I had to get to in the realization. It's like, oh, this, yeah. is, like, this is a great stanza. I'm right. going to cut this and put it and somewhere. And save it. Yeah, because there's obviously some right. other poem or some right. other work that this is. Right. Because right. I used to write very, um, Tangentially, I would I would wander all over the place. Mm. Which, if you're trying to do William Carlos Williams ambulatory type styles, works. Maybe. But um, a lot of like I was trying to be concise and trying to pare down things, which didn't work. And there was one um, one poem in my thesis actually that, at, in the process of writing it, I realized was two poems, and I had to figure right. out like which right. one this thing actually wanted to be, and then I just separated them. That's one thing I'm totally great at now that I've seen enough of my students work is, is figuring out what needs to happen. Right. <laughs> that's like having the magic wand, you know what I mean? Um, one of my one of my mentors and uh, friends and a great poet, uh, Dorianne Locks, she's really good at that too. Um, you know, I mean, Dorianne is, is, is fantastic at sitting in, inside of a workshop, listening to something even by ear most times and saying, yeah, go back to that line where you said, <laughs> you know, you, you walk walked on the street and looked at, you know, the, the, you know, whatever, the bark on a tree, whatever. She's like, and then she's like, yeah, that, that's not, that's not working or it needs to move down. Like she's a, a guru with that sort of thing. And I think if you've listened to enough poems in workshop, you can kind of um, do that thing. But talking about also famous, uh, what do we say, canonized, well, you spoke about Rita Dove quickly. 
um, poets that do revision. I mean, look at Walt Whitman. Look at Leaves of Grass. I mean, he wrote that, rewrote that thing like 9,000 times before we got the actual copy that we got, right? And if you look, actually you can, I mean, in the library and other places, you can find originals and revisions of Walt Whitman's work. And I'm telling you, dude, you're super happy that he, that he revised some of that oh, yeah. stuff because, you know, I think about um, even the small poem that I love, um, this is called Oh Noiseless Patient Spider. And you see the original, which the original is like somebody just talking out loud. It's just a whole bunch of thoughts about like webs and love and fathomless oceans of, of like it's just it's just rambling and it's but then when you look at the the re the revised poem right I mean it's this super short condensed two stanza six line maybe maybe seven line um, poem that's really sure of itself and and after you read it you know what it is trying to distill right you know and um, and so revision to me is like a priceless thing, you know, and, and like you said, the, the workshop um, process, you can meet a lot of people. I feel like one of the reasons you go to MFA is to get um, people, readers who can evaluate your work, right? You, you know, fellow travelers down this road we call poetry, right? And so, um, and those people, and not everyone, not everyone in your group is going to be a good reader of your work, right? But you may find one stellar person, right? I mean, one of my friends, actually, I was telling you, um, that came to town this weekend, um, Shannon Moore, she's a friend, but she's also from my MFA program, and we've been longtime readers of each other's work since yeah. we graduated, and I mean, she she knows what I'm trying to do, she can assess what needs to go, what needs to stay, and I think that's the part of what you're paying for MFA, you know, part of the reason, you know, why you're, you know, paying the thousands of dollars yep. is so that you can get a community of people that you can share your work with and that you trust. You know yeah, what I mean? It's, it's super, super vitally important to um, have solid first readers of I your agree. work. I um, agree. Unless you've got to the point, I mean, like, again, like I've gotten to the point that I can be, I can be that for myself, um, but it's, sure. it's also, it's like, I still will send my poems to people and right. just get their opinions. Because right. And I'm, I'm really, I really value um, I mean, I value my poet. I value my poet friends' opinions. I value my other writer friends' opinions. Right. And I also really, really value people that my friends that don't write. Right. Because you know, it's like if my book of poetry is somewhere with somebody who, who has had very little or limited experience with poetry comes and picks it up. Right. It's like that's a part of my. That's a swath of my audience that. It's like I need to make sure that these things are moving in ways that even somebody who's not necessarily experienced with. Agreed. Um, it'd be like, you know. Your work needs to be accessible. It can't just be, I mean, I mean, you know, that that's a debate too, accessible versus non-accessible poetry. But yeah, you feel like, I feel like I want my work to be accessible. So you're right, friends who are not poets. I like, I take their you know, thoughts into consideration too, but you do need people who can be that first set of eyes on something that you're really trying to get a sense of, is this going the right direction or is this not, you know, going the right direction? And, you know, you need that. That's that's a crucial part of being a poet. I feel like that community, and you're, you're connected with, I mean, well, the UB, I'll just say that, the UB greater network here in Baltimore, who, I mean, you know, Anthony Mall and, you know, uh, Ian and Michael, and I mean, the community is pretty wide here, you know, and so you know lots of people who are invested in writing, and so that's a great thing, you know what I mean, to stay, even to be, even to stay after you finish your degree, stay in the, which I did not, because I got my degree in the South, um, in North Carolina State University in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, but I did not stay to live in the 
in right. where the town where I did my MFA. So I sort of lost the net, you know, some network of people who I, I was close to. But I think it must be great to be to live and work in the city where you get your MFA and have all those connections. Yeah, like you know, it's been and it's it helps also with. Um, I mean, I guess this is just like an aspect of the community of like when readings are happening or just sure. experience right. or opportunities to like publish a work or work, sure. you know, work or do a reading, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like um, with, you know, like good and bad with the advent of technology and the, the kind of instantaneous communication you can mm. have with people, um, one of the good things about that is um, the ability, I mean, aside from the, the times when life kind of happens and gets in the way, sure. but the ability to maintain um, like a readership or like a first reader or like that type of friendship with somebody that you yeah. just like you write something on Google Docs and you just share it with the person and send them email like, right. you know, hey, whenever you get a chance I would love to have your sure. thoughts on this and it's sure. you know, a lot of the um, um, like my partner is not a poet um, neither is mine but she, I trust her um, I trust her opinion on like how things move Right. Um, so she's typically, you know, it's like, I'll, if I work on something, and I'll be like, hey, you want to read a poem? She's like, yeah, sure. And then, or right. even just have the, to have the encouragement that there's somebody else out there that actively wants to read the things that you write. It's just, it's a, it's great to have somebody in your corner. Like, or maybe she's, a, or maybe she's afraid you'll kick her out of the bed at night. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. My fiance is probably afraid I'm gonna. No, I'm joking. No, I mean, no. You're right. Is that you need a, you, and it's great to have that pair of eyes, even in the house much less right, yeah. like you're saying it's great and that's the way I feel like yeah he's the same way he reads my work and um, is really pretty good at telling me when I'm when I'm going down a bad path you know he's not afraid to say yeah this is not your best this is you know and I think you should put this aside and come back to it later or approach it from a different view you know I think all that stuff is um, and you need an honest you need an honest you need honest eyes you know what I mean that's not not yeah. eyes that are say oh you're the greatest thing you know what I mean I mean who I mean, I think every writer, I'm sure, you know, Rita Dove, Rita Dove's husband, I'm sure he says, hey, you know, this ain't so great sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or so I think, in my imagine, you know, Rita Dove, my imaginated friend, you yes. know, whatever. Um, yeah, I... Don't call me Rita. Please, 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 please don't call or me. Or call say. her to affirm and validate what she Yes, said. and let's get together <laughs> and co-write a poem or whatever. That would be fantastic. You no. know, with Google Docs and... I actually was... Um, there collaborating with a friend of mine and she was in Lafayette, uh, Louisiana. Oh. Mm -hmm. um, like, we would give each other a line of a poem and we just would go back and oh, forth. Oh, that's nice. With, you know, that's nice. Was, we, it never was finished, but it was just a really neat experience to have this, like, um, you know, I can, I can do this with right. somebody, which is wild. Inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, motivation sometimes to see something else new from someone else. That's nice too. You know, I think it's like, you know, like it's almost like a phone conversation, right? I mean, like line for line is kind of like, but you better know. because I hate talking on the phone. Okay. Well, you, most guys do. I think that's a, I think, I, I don't know. Maybe that's not, I don't know. There are like two or three people that I can talk on the phone with and it's not uncomfortable for me. I think, so talking about ear fatigue, one of the issues <laughs> is that, um, like if I have something pressed on my ear, the longer that I'm on the phone, or like the longer that it's there, the more tired my ear gets. So I, I don't hear things a lot, which mm. and I punctuate like not hearing things on the phone with awkward laughter. So it's just it's just a bad because um, I don't have um, 
I think it's an introvert thing, or a, mm, a, like a flavor be. of introvert right. thing. Right, I think, so I think so too. I, I, I think so the, too. Like, I can talk to people in person, no problem, because I have, like, the facial features, like, the face that I can look at and, you know, sure. like, if and I'm, figure out if, yeah, yeah. It's like if I'm quiet for some reason, they know by looking at me that it's, you know, there's a reason because I'm thinking about something or I'm just I'm, like, um, digesting something they said. But on the phone, if somebody says something, you're like, yeah. And, you're just and there's like, just a pause. Just quiet for yeah. like 20 seconds. You know, there's, it's, it feels weird and it's awkward. And, I don't know, for me it is. I, I think conversation can be that way though too. I think conversation can be weird and awkward and I think, um, you know, some people are, I don't know, more okay with awkward conversation and some people are more okay with awkward phone conversations. To me, I don't know. And it may be an introvert, extrovert thing. I'm always thinking, I, I always say I'm an, I'm an extroverted introvert in certain, in certain ways like that. So yeah, I used, you know, when I was young, I was definitely totally an introvert, but I think in adult years, I've become an extra, I call it extroverted you kinda, you kinda introvert. You have to learn how to play the game. You do. And it's just, a, it's a level of, cause like I can be um, really, really gregarious when the, the, the situation requires it. But usually at the end of that, I'm like, I don't, I can't talk to somebody. Oh for yeah, like oh yeah. I just yeah. have to be. That's, yes, I agree. And readings, readings do that to me. Readings overstimulate me mm -hmm. and, and I'm great at the reading and I'm reading and people are like, yay, and you know, can we buy your book and can we talk to you later, you know, and maybe I may even go out and have a glass of wine with people afterwards or whatever, but you know, after I do that, I'm crashed. Like, yeah, I'm, like I'm, I'm pretty much like, yeah, the next, you know, day and a half, I kind of want to don't, you know, I, you just need, you need decompression time, I think, you know what I mean? Oh, I've never, so I'm, I'm the same way in public, um, I guess exposure type things like that, and I, I didn't put it together that. Um, so I'm I don't like readings because I that's um, I don't like giving readings because it's not the way that I would want my readers or my like audience to mm. experience my work. Like mm. I don't I don't write to be heard aloud. I write to be read right. on the page. Mm. Um, but I think that I just put together that it might also be the, the fact that they're so draining for me that it's like they I, are. that type of experience is something that I can do maybe once every couple of weeks but mm. more than that it's just like I I don't have anything left to give to people because it's yeah. like the energy that you have to put out and especially with it's a lot yeah and it's like if you're writing it is. not necessarily confessional but like personal kind of autobiographical oh, yeah. stuff oh, it's yeah. like in your the goal of these things is to hit everybody individually. It's like yeah. You really have to put out a very particular type and a fair amount of energy yes. in the reading to make sure that yes. like, everybody's getting it the way that you want them to yes. get it. Or like either everybody gets it or yes. nobody gets it, which is yes. a kind of a critical reading. Yes. And I think, you know, it also depends on what kind of um, person you are because I think a lot of times, um, sometimes uh, my fiance will ask me if we're out somewhere, um, if we're at a party or something like that, he'll say, are you having fun? And I say, well, I'm kind of making sure someone else has fun. So I feel like for readings, that's part of kind of what you have to do because it is the performance element of it that you're not really thinking about how tired you're getting from expounding all this. You're making sure that the crowd is not just entertained, but that they are absorbing your work in the right way. And that's sort of a really different, mm -hmm. and you have to give, you know, it is a lot of giving, you know, like here's this thing and I hope that you receive it properly, you know what I mean? But if not, you can just, um, yeah, some, it's just not, and I think a lot of, I feel like a lot of poets are introverts. I feel like most of the, I, I, 
I mean, I don't know. We, that could be a maybe. That should be a Twitter, um, a Twitter poll. I think is Ooh, yeah. is we should we should ask people. Um, you know how many how many and poets that, are introverts? That to me would make a certain a certain amount. Of I think sense a lot of them. That you know, it's like it's the for me for writing poetry. It's like that's the way that I engage and connect with the world. That yeah, other people if they experience something, their first inclination is to tell somebody about it. My right. first inclination is like I got I got fucking write this down. Right. With Kind right. of the idea that eventually it might reach a bunch of people, but right. like it's it, re it will reach people with the minimal amount of social expenditure on my part. Mm -hmm. yeah. Different, different, yeah. And that I mean, different strokes for different folks. You know, it really just depends on uh, how you envision your work. You know, but it is a lot of it is. I cannot deny that it is t it is tiring, and especially like I said, my book uh, when it came out. Actually, I don't know how long we have to uh, talk about this, but. Um, when my book came out, since it's published in the UK, the UK, I did a brief UK tour, actually, and I and I thought it was going to be the funniest thing is in Celeste's mind. She thought, you know, touring her first book for a week and a half in the UK was going to be vacation. It was going to be, you know, like me going to the, you know, museum and all of this stuff. It ended up being, I mean, like, kind of at the end, I was kind of having a breakdown. I kind of was like... I have been to like, you know, I've done seven readings in like 13 days and I'm ready to fall on my face. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if I that's a, typical or not, but that's a, the way I felt. I have I a friend who um, does tours, like he's a spoken word, primarily oh. a spoken word poet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he'll go on tours in like certain regions and stuff and it's like, he, he told me, um, he was, I think the last podcast guest. No. Oh. Um, but he was like, the performance for him most of the time doesn't stop when he steps off stage. The performance is like, it, it doesn't stop until he leaves the exactly. store. And like that level of like, you know, being, having the, like presenting the persona that you want to be cultivated for people or like the persona that they expect you to have as, yes. a, you know, like as a touring poet. Yes. Um, Yes, it was a lot, and I re and I really did not. I was uh, very naive about about what. I mean, it was great. I mean, I shouldn't. I I sound like I'm denigrating it. it I'm not. It was a fantastic experience, Just and I very met different from what you expected. very different from yeah. what I and very exhausting. And I needed like you know, and I didn't have a lot of time off in between. I was literally moving to different cities. I went to Manchester. I was in Hull. I was in London. I was, in, you know, all of these places. So I was literally traveling. The days that I was not reading, I right. was physically traveling, mm -hmm. and then I would get to some place and I would sleep overnight and get up and then do it. It was very, you know, it was intense, you know, and I sort of felt like at the end, like, wow, if this is, I can't imagine people who, you know, and I have a good friend too, uh, she's a fiction writer, um, shout out to my girlfriend, Naomi Jackson, um, who uh, just published her, her uh, first fiction novel this year, but she's touring and, uh, you know, she's being sent everywhere. And, uh, you know, I know I can kind of see, you know, she's a great friend, but I can, when I see her, when I run into her, she's like, yeah, you know, I am, I am it drains on running you. on E, you know, yep. and so not in a bad way, but it just, you know, it's your craft, it's what you love, it's what you want to do, but um, it can, you know, um, doing it nonstop for two weeks or something like that can definitely drain you. So, yeah. I don't know. So I think that we're probably at reaching the point where we have to kind of wind things up. Um, I think so too, yeah. But before we go, uh, as tradition, um, I'd like to ask my guests if there's anything that they would like to ask me. So, Celeste, um, oh. briefly, if we can, is there anything that you would like to ask? 
Um, well, now since you've recently just told me that you're also a musician and you play guitar, my one question for you probably would be, how does your music knowledge influence your poetry or do, or do you think it influences it? Do you feel like your poetry becomes more musical because of your um, interest in, uh, you know, guitar? Do Actually, you? the more and more that I learned about music, the, the kind of tendency that I realized that um, I would much rather uh, express myself through music. Because mm. it's, for me, music is a... Is Thank a, you. Um, yeah, have a good night. Um, we'll be getting out of your hair in a, in a few. Okay. Um, uh, it's for me, music is a much more is a much more direct um, translation from emotion into the Whereas mm -hmm. for me, poetry goes through a couple of steps. Sure. Because so, um, the music that I play is largely instrumental, mm -hmm. so I don't rely on words at all. It's just it's like I can it's like uh, abstract expressionless paintings that, that they right. tap into something and it's that kind of like directly put whatever it is that you feel out there instead of mm -hmm. feeling this thing and then having to go through the steps of like well how do I explain this or what's like what is this like word wise um, so in my I guess my ideal world I would be doing just music um, mm. as expression even though you love poetry yes probably um, I mean okay. I, I don't know if I could stop writing haiku just because that's I love doing that that's but okay. um, like my my kind of ideal goal would be to develop like musical styles based on stuff that I write, or mm -hmm. get to the point where it's like I can have this idea and flush out this world that would be in my writing, but have it be totally encapsulated. Wow, there it is. That's that's a sorry poets. I might be jumping ship soon. No, 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 no. I think it's actually I think what you're what you've said is a common. Um, I think. Some poets, myself included, love music because they do feel like it's a freedom of expression that sometimes words can't quite get to. Yeah, and I like I think that I'm a poet primarily because I have very little uh, visual art ability, like painting ability. Mm. I would probably be if I could be a straight up landscape landscape painter, ex almost exclusively. Mm. Um, but I can't do that. You all might have another artistic career on the yeah, all, all my experiences, visual experiences, get channeled into poetry. Hmm. Um, and all like if, if I'm going through some sort of heavy emotional thing, it's easier for me to do it in music than it is like in just a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My music instead yeah. of having to like um, be objective and get some space and think about how to actually present it. Yeah, it's almost like a translation, actually. That's what, what yeah. writing about something is almost yeah. like a translate. Like it goes from this to that, you know, as opposed to a direct, like you said, a direct expression. Yeah. Of, yeah, I totally get it. So, as fitting with uh, a lot of talk about poetry being uh, sprints and not marathons, <laughs> this might be one of my shortest podcasts. But um, I would like to thank you, Celeste, for. Thank you, in. Michael, for having me. Um, I had a great time. Didn't, Great did conversation. Not, didn't I get? To, yeah, didn't get to talk about things, all the things that I wanted to, but I feel like we talked about what we needed to. Well, at any time, you could always have me back. You yeah. know, maybe if you do another panel uh, as you're com coming up in your next well, I'm podcast. I'm definitely going to think about some ways to get repeat guests. Right. But yes, yeah, so this is episode 12. Um, as always, thank every, thank all of y'all for listening. Um, I will be back next month with this panel. Um, so that'll Fantastic. be fun. Um, so, yeah, go, go do art, go enjoy doing, making things, <laughs> um, but revise it. Make sure that it's, it says what you want it to say. Agreed. <laughs> All right, guys, Bye. until next time.